Hello and welcome to episode number 201 of the Armin Show podcast. We have a wonderful guest here, author of a book, co-written The Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. This is Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, co-written with Michael Long, and the book is about dopamine, its impacts in relation to the brain, a lot of wonderful details about if you are scientifically minded, how to connect with individuals who maybe are not of the same uh, processing as you, or hormonal state, if it will. And on this episode, I have Dr. Lieberman. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. Now, I want to do the episode in two parts. One, about your career and some elements of it along the way. And then the second part about the book and some details across the chapters of it. Now, Sounds great. You are a medical doctor by trade. Yes, that's right. Okay. And before you got there, now at one point you took part in the St. John's College Great Books Program. What do you remember from that? Because it's kind of cool that it's called the Great Books Program. I'd never yes. heard of that. I remember a lot from it. That was one of the high points of my life. Mm -hmm. It's a very special school. There are no textbooks, no tests, no lectures. We just get together and we read the great books of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. These are the most important things ever written, um, starting back with the ancient Greeks, with Homer and Sophocles and Plato and Aristotle. And then we work our way up to the present time, reading only original sources with the idea that that's going to exercise your mind in the best way, trying to figure out what they are saying and really putting together an overall philosophical view of the world. Mm -hmm. Were you first interested in philosophy by itself or was that part of the program? You know, when you're, uh, when you're in high school, all of these colleges send you all kinds of promotional information. And what St. John's did is they simply sent me a list of the books that you read as part of the program. Mm -hmm. And I saw that list and I said, I got to read these books. And right. um, that's what led me there. And, and it wasn't just philosophy. There's also history, mathematics, science. When I applied to medical school, I had all of the prere uh, prerequisites I needed mm -hmm. except for a few semesters of chemistry, so I, I just went to my local university, picked those up. But surprisingly, with the St. John's way of teaching, you do get a lot of science and math. Oh, okay. So there was a bit of that. Was Marcus Aurelius' Meditations part of that, that book? It absolutely was. That's, That's right. Cool. The Stoics. Nice. Yeah, I liked something about that book. I read some parts of it, and I was like, "This is I can connect with this. That's wonderful." Now, after that, you went to Tokyo, Japan, and do you know Japanese, or did you only you taught English to Japanese people, which is very useful, by the way. How was that experience? It was absolutely wonderful. As I approached graduation, I was thinking about what am I going to do with my life, mm -hmm. and I didn't have an answer. And so naturally, I went around complaining to all my friends, mm -hmm. and <laughs> one of them was Japanese, oh. and he said, look, this was, uh, this was in 1985. Okay. This was the height of the bubble economy in Japan. Oh. Um, the economy was amazing. They were buying Rockefeller Center, Pebble Beach. Everyone thought the Japanese economy was going to take over the world. And oh. he said, listen, all of their prosperity is from international trade. Anybody, any Native Amer English speaker with a college degree mm -hmm. can get a job off the plane. 
So I persuaded my roommate to come with me. We bought one-way tickets to Tokyo, and we both got jobs teaching English. And, and it was an amazing experience. Huh. That is interesting. Getting the one-way ticket is a move. It's like, I'm going there. I do not plan to return. <laughs> that, that's what you do when you're young. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's cool. Now, while you were in Japan, you read books by Carl Jung. He is uh, the person who puts... He has like personality descriptions. Did you do you know your Myers Briggs? Is that the category? What do you think about that? Yeah, you know Myers Briggs uh, is based on Jungian psychology, mm -hmm. but it was not developed by Carl Jung himself. Mm. In fact, it was not even developed by any psychologist at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it really gained used. an enormous amount of popularity, particularly in um, in corporations. But really, it's fallen out of favor because mm. it was never based on any scientific research. It was somebody's good idea. Right. And when scientists took a closer look at it, they discovered that it was not valid. Mm -hmm. And then that's why the like Big Five is more... The Big Five, yeah. That's what all of the uh, researchers use, and that's been very well validated. Mm -hmm. So then after that, you went to medical school. You focused on the human mind... This is because, why? Because you could have focused on the lungs, I guess. Right, right. Well, you know, I was thinking about becoming a Jungian psychologist at first. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he was a psychoanalyst, and usually when people think about psychoanalysis, they think about Sigmund Freud. Mm. And Jung doesn't get as much attention, but personally, I think that Jung is a lot more interesting. Freud focused on the instincts, but he really limited them to aggression and desire, specifically sexual desire, whereas Jung really looked, took a much more broad view, and one of his wonderful insights was to realize that historically, mythology, fairy tales, legends, all kinds of stories about supernatural creatures were actually explorations of the unconscious mind, although, of course, these populations did not realize it. They were projecting what was inside of them onto the physical environment and making stories about them. So by reading Jung, I got this wonderful experience of exploring, I should say re-exploring, mythology, philosophy, theology, as it applies to the way the human brain works. So I thought about becoming a psychologist, um, spoke with one of my former professors, and he persuaded me that I ought to go to medical school if I wanted to study the mind, because really a lot of the most interesting work was being done biologically with the brain. So mm -hmm. with my experience with Jung, with my experience with the great books, I, I said, look, I want to spend my life looking at the mind because that's the single most interesting thing there is in the universe, right. I think. So I went to medical school to become a psychiatrist. That makes sense. I just had that same uh, description. I find the mind to be, I don't see what else there is that is doing more or processing more on the planet. I can't see it. You know, sometimes psychiatry is not viewed as the most prestigious branch of medicine, mm -hmm. and a lot of doctors don't necessarily like working with psychiatric patients, mm -hmm. but I do not understand that stigma, right. because if you look at our modern economy, 
essentially all of our wealth is a result of creativity, products of the human mind. If you look at your day-to-day experience, your lifetime experience, and what determines how fulfilled, successful, and happy you're going to be, Mm -hmm. that depends in large part on how well your brain is functioning. And so, in my opinion, if there's any part of the body that's going to be sick, the brain is the single most important one. And I really feel that psychiatry is the most important branch of medicine. Yes. I see it as, like with the brain, it, it, I think it t- pro- takes up 25% of the body's resources. The eyes take up a big percentage of, percentage of that. A lot of our processing and sugar, and it goes straight to it. And everything I look at, when I look at buildings or roads or people or actions or anything, it's all the processes that happen right there. So I see it as the main thing. Yes. It's an interesting evolutionary question because, as you pointed out, the brain consumes vast amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. And from an evolutionary point of view, that can be a problem uh, because it, it requires additional resources simply to stay alive. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the brain turned out to be a terrific investment from a survival point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's believed that one of the biggest evolutionary advantages that led to our very large outsized brain is our ability to cooperate with other people. Because from an evolutionary point of view, no matter how big or strong you are, you're not going to be able to compete with a gang. And so the ability of people to work together to get resources, to defend resources, really outweighed any other advantages that evolution could provide. Right. Yes. I always look at that like uh, all the resources are to the brain. And then the newest part of the brain, the neocortex, is like it's each thing that was necessary for the an upgrade, if you will. And it took more resources, but it gave an advantage to those few that used that. I like that feature. Yeah, that, that's right. The neocortex is what makes us uniquely human. Mm-hmm. And, and as we'll probably get to later, uh, what's interesting is its activity is orchestrated by dopamine. Mm-hmm. And so that by understanding dopamine, it really gives us insight into the human condition. Mm-hmm. This is true. Now, and then currently as a... Uh, descriptor there you are at washington dc and are part of the faculty of george washington university how is that and how long have you been there and where is that going towards or what do you like doing there it's absolutely wonderful being here i love george washington university Mm -hmm. i i came here immediately following my residency training which i did at new york university Mm -hmm. and that was also a wonderful experience one of the main teaching hospitals is bellevue hospital Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've ever heard of it It, i have not it's a pretty famous Wait, I think I have. I have. I'm sorry. I have. You know, you hear about it in movies and TV shows. It's kind of the prototypic uh, psychiatric hospital. Yes. The chair of our department once called it the Noah's Ark of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. He said, um, if there's one anywhere in the world, we've got two at Bellevue. Oh, that's a great point. And- and, um, you know, with a hospital, there's something called a catchment area. That, that determines um, geographically what patients you take care of. And Bellevue Hospital's catchment area is Midtown Manhattan and the two New York City airports. 
And so what would happen is that a lot of times people would experience a psychotic break or a manic episode somewhere in the world and they would get it into their head, I'm going to New York City. They would land and then be taken to Bellevue Hospital. And we got to see a lot of very fascinating cases. Oh, that was the place. That was the place they went straight to? Yeah. Interesting. That's pretty cool. It's always So anyways, after I finished uh, training there, I um, I took a position on the faculty of George Washington University, and I started out as the director of the substance abuse treatment program, mm-hmm. and that was one of my first exposures to what happens when the dopamine circuits in the brain start malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did that for, um, I think, somewhere between five and ten years. And then I started working with a psychiatrist by the name of Fred Goodwin. And he's a world-renowned expert in bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And so I shifted my focus from drugs of abuse to bipolar disorder, which really was not that great of a shift because there's a lot of overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. When bipolar patients experience abnormally elevated mood, they often engage in drug use. And so it was helpful for me to have that background. Mm -hmm. I uh, served as the director of psychiatric research for a period of time and did a lot of clinical trials with psychiatric medications as well as some other studies in substance abuse and bipolar disorder. And um, once I reached the rank of professor and no longer had to engage in the publish or parish of the uh, peer-reviewed papers, Mm -hmm. I began to be interested in reaching out to the broader public to share some of the fascinating stories and information that I had acquired. You know, when you write a paper for a peer-reviewed journal, it it can take two or three years to gather the data, evaluate the data, write it up, and get it published. Mm -hmm. And then after that, maybe only a dozen or so people will ever read the paper. Right. And I found that somewhat frustrating. And I thought that if I could write for a lay population, people who aren't necessarily experts in this area, I could really make a bigger impact on spreading knowledge, helping people understand the brain better, and uh, just improving people's insight into why it is they do what they do and what it means to be human. Right. This is true. Now, I will mention, uh, in connection with the book, I'm very liking of books in this category because it speaks directly to me when it's uh, scientifically written because a lot of things that are said socially, I get it, but I don't really get it. And then when it's said in terms of brain processing or hormones or pathways or the direct feedback loops, then it makes sense to me like, oh, this person does this because they feel a moment of reward or empowerment so then it leads them to that so it is very uh, valuable to me to connect with that and that reveals a little something about your brain right you are uh you are abstractly oriented you do very well with ideas Mm -hmm. um social interaction is maybe not quite as easy it's not as conducive to my processing because when i hear it i've heard many different phrases over time that are normal phrases, but they didn't resonate with me because 
they're not logically this this or something this but then when it's described in here i'm like oh okay this okay because of so that's a very nice uh, feature that i can't get elsewhere frankly ah thank you yes thanks now to go into so the chapters i liked that it was each chapter had a main point there was a seven chapters and each one was this topic and clearly connected to often dopamine and then uh, also bringing it back to balancing as a person now um one element uh from this was from the first chapter talking about it being connected with possibility and anticipation and that it's a higher effect i think i've seen before that an anticipatory effect can even be a higher dopamine spike than the actual reward at the end is it sort of like i used to think of dopamine like a a light bulb and then it's like the light bulb turns turns on but it wouldn't make sense for it to be on continually then you'd never know if it was on or not so it's sort of like a constant trigger to uh, progress or movement is that a way to look at it I, I think so. Definitely motivation. It's mm-hmm. a big trigger for. You know, people who've heard about dopamine often think about it as the pleasure molecule. Right. And that's true up to a point. But um, one of the main reasons we wrote the book was to show that it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more powerful than that. And it's a lot more ubiquitous than that dopamine plays a role in so much of our lives you know it 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 came about by evolution and it was designed to motivate us to stay alive and reproduce Mm -hmm. and so um we get dopamine hits when we eat when we're hungry when we win a competition when we get something that we really want or need Mm -hmm. when we have sex And all of these things are associated with pleasure, but that's not really what dopamine is about. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is more about creating these desires for things that we need and giving us the energy and the motivation to pursue them. Mm -hmm. Now, it's like the the motivator of all. I looked at when it was talking about the uh, drugs and the usage like that. So even though it's the motivator... I noted that let's say an individual has a couple of drinks or maybe smoke cigarettes, which I didn't even think about before that uh, cigarettes or any sort of substance, they give a dopamine reward feeling. So it makes more sense now uh, why they would be used. And then I was wondering, so then would then people be more likely if they didn't feel energized enough in a social setting or maybe before they're taking part in some sort of conflict to then use a substance to then be empowered and feel like they have a chance to uh, come out uh, winning or more able to present themselves. Yes, yes. It's interesting that you point out that you didn't realize that cigarettes affected the brain in a way that was similar to, let's say, cocaine or heroin. Yeah, but you know, um, any substance that increases dopamine activity in the brain is going to be addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does include marijuana. That, that's another drug that some people mistakenly believe is not addictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it does increase dopamine, and uh, as a result, it is. Um, you know, as I mentioned, dopamine is the circuit designed to keep us alive. Mm-hmm. When it goes off, it's a signal to the brain that what happened is something that is essential for survival and success. 
And so when we artificially stimulate this circuit with drugs of abuse, like cigarettes, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, we're giving it a chemical uh, stimulation. That's a hard slam that is stronger than it gets from ordinary activities, mm -hmm. such as um, getting praise from your boss or scoring a goal in the soccer game. Right. And that intense response confuses the brain. It, it, it sends the message, this activity is more important for your survival and success than anything else because it's based on the magnitude of dopamine stimulation. And that's why we see these terrible situations in, in which drug addicts will give up their family, their job, their home, their health in order to pursue this chemical that's destroying their life. From the outside, it seems utterly irrational. From the inside, though, it seems completely rational because what their brain is saying is that this is essential. Your job, your family, your health are not as important as cocaine because your brain is being confused by the strong dopamine hit the chemical provides. Mm -hmm. And then also I was relating it to if there's a, like a person who, you know, many stories of people that would like drink and be violent or they might... Uh, smoke cigarettes and be argumentative they're using it at the time to empower themselves to be able to do that thing because maybe they were too weak to do that beforehand or um, it energizes them during the process but it's, de it's definitely like fueling that yeah. it is it is mm -hmm. and um you know, a lot of our life is devoted to stimulating the dopamine circuit mm -hmm. um, be because um, biologically, that's how the brain is organized um, to, to make us go through life essentially defining success by how much dopamine different activities release. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having a dopamine hit gives us something to look forward to. Um, as you mentioned, it, it really is the chemical of anticipation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, using these drugs does put people in a different state of mind. It, it relaxes them. It makes them energized. But that's not that's not as directly related to the role of dopamine. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is more related to the anticipation that they look forward to having that drink at the end of the day. Right. They look forward to getting high on the weekend. And that gives them kind of a spice to life. Right. And when it gets out of hand, they go into treatment and they realize they need to stop this behavior. They often feel that their life becomes flat and dull. Mm-hmm. I like that part. I don't know if it was in this chapter or if it's in a later one, but I definitely noted the part where uh, dopamine is at three to five, let's say, hits per second normally, and then when you're excited, it goes up to 20 or 30 firings per second. But then if you have an expectation and it's not met, then it drops down to zero uh, firings per second, which then feels like that like empty the feeling of uh, disappointment. It's it's a miserable feeling. Um, I, I describe it as resentful and deprived. Mm -hmm. And the example I give is, um, you know, let's say you're waiting in line in the morning for your usual coffee and muffin, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your phone rings, your boss says, get into the office right now, there's a crisis, I need you. And um, you have this expectation of coffee and a muffin, and you don't get it. And it, it feels nasty. It feels like resentful and deprived. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's no fun when your dopamine drops because of an unmet expectation. Right.
And, and as a result, you know, some people say one of the keys to living a happy life is to try not to build up these expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't go through life saying I need this, I need that. Try to go through taking things as they come, mm-hmm. and that way, when something good happens, it will be a surprise. You'll get dopamine, and when things are not so good, you're less likely to experience the dopamine crash. Mm-hmm. It's like evolutionary guidance through our hormonal release. It's wonderful. That's right. Better living through chemicals. <laughs> That's pretty good. Now, in relation to that, one part you had mentioned that uh, in video games or elsewhere, there's percentages that are most motivating, like uh, 25% of boxes in a video game having something in them is the maybe most motivating percentage that uh, keeps a player playing or if uh, there's a game-changing thing, having it in one out of a thousand findings, things like that that video game designers find out over time when they get the data. Could those be connected to a long time ago, like the same ratio of like looking for fruits or food or something like that? Maybe. I, I think that's very possible, yes. You know, there's a lot of discussion these days about whether video games have the potential to be addictive. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like probably not in adults, but it probably does in children and adolescents. Mm-hmm. And people who design video games, they probably don't know it, but they are masters of dopamine manipulation. Mm-hmm. They are constantly making people feel like they need to work in order to get rewards, yes. whether it's points, whether it's a new scope for your rifle, uh, whether it's a golden coin. And what they do is that as you play, they're constantly collecting data on everything you do. And they evaluate what makes you quit playing the game and what makes you play longer. And they're constantly optimizing the different variables in order to make people play as long as possible, spend as much as possible on loot boxes. And so Mm -hmm. it's not surprising that these games can become compulsive in a way that's reminiscent of what happens when people get addicted to drugs. Right. I've noticed when I'm uh, looking at the details, it's nice when I'm reading through the book, I can put myself into uh, what my description is I found myself to be dopaminergically based but also my control dopamine is very solid so it doesn't uh result in desire dopamine getting out of hand yeah it it might be worth distinguishing you know what control dopamine is Mm -hmm. um you know overall the purpose of dopamine is to maximize future resources Mm -hmm. we've been focusing on the circuit that we call in the book desire dopamine. Mm-hmm. That makes you want things, it gives you energy, motivation, excitement, and enthusiasm. Right. But the problem with that circuit is that it tends to focus on short-term game. Um, you know, there's a donut, my dopamine system's telling me I want that donut. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important to have that kind of excitement and motivation, but it's not ideal for long-term success. So there's a different circuit in the brain, which we call control dopamine, Mm -hmm. which is also designed to maximize future resources, but it takes a longer-term view than the desired dopamine. Mm -hmm. Instead of thinking, what's going to happen in the next few seconds or minutes, it can think, what's going to happen in the next few years down the line? And and so it modulates your behavior. It, um, it, It makes you not necessarily reach for that donut. 
and it also helps you make long-term plans and use abstractions such as language, mathematics, concepts in order to really build uh, a future full of maximization of resources. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and, and it gives us self-control and uh, it gives us the intellectual firepower we need to solve complicated problems. Mm -hmm. Now, when I am uh, having of that quality, when I see video games or uh, social media services and I'm not really pulled into the effects that they're trying to have, then I'm able to see it from a, a distant view. And then after a while, I notice any, whether it's a social media service or a video game or any category, after a while starts to get into a certain form that matches what we're evolutionarily built for because they figure out, oh, if people check this thing this many times or this, this, this is the exact ratio. And it always seems to match up to the same stuff that we were probably built to do long ago i know yes yeah yeah we spoke about video games but social media mm -hmm. is even more dopaminergic and um in my opinion um has a, a greater potential for becoming malignant mm -hmm. um you know we're constantly feeling like we need to check our social media mm -hmm. because we might miss out on something right that's dopamine um, you know, in, instead of uh, walking through the fields looking for bushes with berries on them, right. we're scrolling through our feed looking for something that might be relevant to us. Right. Um, if somebody likes a post, it gives us a little dopamine right. hit. And it's very easy to become dependent on that. I can't get through the day, somebody might say, right. without these little hits of people liking media. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that really drives me crazy are these infinite scrolls right. where you never reach the end. You're not the As end. you right. scroll down, more is loaded. You're scrolling, scrolling. You're bored out of your mind. Mm -hmm. You may even feel negative mood by this, right. but you can't stop because your dopamine circuit is saying, hey, there might be a berry bush down there, right? There, there mm -hmm. may be something down there that could have an impact on your future, so you better keep going because you don't want to miss it. Right. I've noticed that, and then the amounts of... I, I almost feel like there's uh, delays on some of them so that it's more continuous over time, uh, maybe spacing things out so that it has a higher impact. But I can't confirm it because I'm not in their coding department, but I know that kind of thing. Yeah, but they're thinking about that all the time. They're not thinking about the well-being of their users. Right. They're thinking about um, controlling and manipulating their users. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do it, some other company... We'll do it better, and then that company will be the the social media leader or something. Yeah, I think so, but but not forever. You know, right. just like our society has really gotten, it, we've done a good job getting smoking under control. Mm -hmm. um, you know, smoking can be a great pleasure. Um, I used to be a smoker, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it's it's terribly harmful. And right. I think we're starting to wake up and realize the same thing is true of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of focus on privacy these days, but there's there's also a focus on the fact that using social media for long periods of time is a risk factor for depression. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because you're constantly comparing yourself to this curated, filtered stream of the best of other people's lives, right. and so we begin to think, okay, everybody's life is better than mine. Mm -hmm. And I think we may be seeing the beginning of the end. Like of a pullback. Media. 
Yeah, yeah. and I, I will welcome that. <laughs> it doesn't... I think there's a common uh, thread among the majority, because maybe minority, it's working out somewhat smoothly or somehow, but for a majority, it's not energizing. I've talked to many people that it's just not energizing for them. Yeah. No, it's like smoking. They, they, in a way, they kind of don't want to do it, mm-hmm. but if they put their phone aside they get anxious what right. am i missing out on and yeah. people are 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 beginning to realize that um that's not how they want to use their time that's just not right mm-hmm. now in relation to using time i noticed in the book relationships affiliative versus agentic i highly identified with agentic relationships because i really like to do things where there's a purpose to it and then i don't like to do things where it's like watching the game or things that are more like sharing time, but there's no uh, purpose or focus. And um, should those individuals in each category uh, be more likely to be on their own? Is there any value to combine the two or is it just not efficient? Uh, they, they shouldn't be on their own. There's a big value to combining the two. Mm-hmm. Just to sort of explain what these things are, in relationships, there are two components. One mm-hmm. is called affiliative, mm-hmm. and this is simply the pleasure of being with people that you like, mm-hmm. um, hanging out with friends, um, spending time with family. And uh, our brain orchestrates these behaviors and feelings with a collection of neurochemicals that we call the here and now neurochemicals. Mm -hmm. And people are familiar with some of these. They include endorphins, endocannabinoids, oxytocin, and they're really focused on the present, not the future like dopamine, Mm -hmm. uh, just enjoyment. Then within relationships, there's also agentic components, and that's about working with people in order to accomplish things. Because this is focused on the future, it's a dopaminergic activity, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's combinations. So if you're hanging out with friends and you're just chatting, you're having a good time, that's affiliative. And then you switch over and you start planning on where you're going to go out that night, Mm -hmm. that becomes agentic. Um, similarly, when you're at work, most of your relationship is agentic, work mm-hmm. on the projects, get the job done, but there's also an affiliative component. You just enjoy being with your coworkers because they're fun people. Mm-hmm. Now, some people are more here and now. Um, they, they just like hanging out with friends. They like socializing. They're good at living in the present moment. Other people are more dopaminergic. Um, that, that's that's more difficult for them. They like working on projects. They like doing things with a purpose. Mm-hmm. But yes. um, it, it's not healthy just to be dopaminergic because um, then you're always anticipating a future that when it becomes the present becomes impossible to enjoy because when something you're anticipating becomes something that you have – dopamine shuts down. One of the uh, most common examples of that is buyer's remorse. Um, Mm -hmm. You think about you're going to buy a new car and you spend hours and hours on the internet researching it, reading about it. You're all excited. Um, This is going to change your life. It's going to be great. Then you buy the car and it becomes the same old, same old. And that's the problem with being too dopaminergic. You're very, very productive great for society, but um, you don't necessarily live a, a full, satisfying life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include the pausing and absorbing what's happening. 
it, it doesn't, and it doesn't include enjoying what you work so hard for. I, I mean, if you think about the kind of people who are able to afford things like beach houses, mm-hmm. these are the people who enjoy them the least, right? Because right, they're not going to enjoy just sitting on the beach doing nothing, right? Right, and, and so that's a great point. You do need to cultivate your ability to enjoy in the present moment the things you've worked so hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. This is true. This is good to note. You always see that. You're like, wait, wait a minute. That is inverted to what it would look like. But the motivation to get there is what caused it. And then after the fact, that individual is not pausing at that. They're focused on the next thing. Right. And, and we're constantly hearing the advice, try to live in the present moment. Uh, this book explains um, why that is such good advice. Right. Uh, it, it explains what's going on in the brain, and, and I think it enables you to better recognize when you're living in a dopaminergic state, when you're living in here and now state, and you can sort of evaluate, is this the optimum state for me to be in? And it gives you a little bit more control over your life. Mm-hmm. This is true. I noted also in the domination chapter one other thing that um, when there are moments of aggression driven by passion, so maybe somebody on the basketball court and they suddenly throw a punch or something, and it shows a weakness in control dopamine, I have always noted that like it's it's very valuable to, uh, we always look at the calm individuals regardless of the situation that uh, it's a higher view because you can see their control is stronger than other individuals that just can't stop from responding in some way. Yes, that's right. You know, there's two kinds of violence, uh, mm-hmm. and we call them hot and cold violence. Mm-hmm. Hot violence is a here and now phenomenon. You get provoked and you just lash out without thinking, mm-hmm. and more often than not, it makes your future worse. Cold violence um, is when you plan, you plot, and you're using violence for a purpose. And and that might be, um, for example, somebody who's taking revenge mm-hmm. or, or somebody who's starting a war. Right. And, um, you know, obviously violence is very rarely a good idea, mm-hmm. but the people engaging in this thought process think that they're improving their uh, future. But as you point out, ideally, you want to use your controlled dopamine to um, abstain from practicing violence, mm-hmm. that when you are being provoked, when your emotion is running high, mm-hmm. you switch out of here and now emotionality and over into dopaminergic cold rationality. Mm-hmm. And you ask yourself, is lashing out the best thing for me or is it better for me to remain calm and put together a rational plan to achieve my goal? Right. Yeah. And we, we call this having a cool head. Right. Uh, you know, when there's a crisis and everyone's reacting emotionally, the person who can overcome that emotion and think logically, they're the cool head and they're the one everyone's going to follow in a crisis. Right. Yes, almost like a leader. Yeah. Now, onward. Now, a lot of dopamine is connected with creativity. Chapter 4 is about creativity and madness. I, um, I find myself to be very... Uh, creating interested because i like uh, making new things which is dopamine connected when someone is in a prolific state uh, of making and doing you had mentioned that desired dopamine can possibly outdo control dopamine because they're really excited so then 
uh, does it make sense for them to be cautious at times or is it um, when does desire dopamine get out of hand yes yes creativity I think is one of the most fascinating things that dopamine does you know just to tie it into what we've been talking about creating things that are new is about maximizing future resources mm -hmm. therefore it is within the realm of dopamine mm -hmm. and you know as we know highly creative people are a little bit different from everyone else yes and um, it it's creativity across the board we sometimes separate um, let's say the fine arts from the hard sciences but they're really not that different from one another. Mm -hmm. They both involve coming up with fresh ideas. And in fact, if you look at scientists, the more prestigious they are, the more likely they are to have a creative hobby, such as painting or playing an instrument. Mm -hmm. But these highly creative people are often strange people. You know, you've got the scientist who can't comb his hair mm -hmm. or put on socks that are both the same color. Right. <laughs> You've got the artists who are at very high risk of developing alcoholism or other substance use disorders mm -hmm. and um, are very, very difficult to get along with because they're impulsive, they're demanding, um, everything always has to be their way. So creativity in some ways is the brain functioning at its highest capacity. But when you've got that much dopamine outweighing your here and now capacity, um, it, it, it can lead to problems and, um, and especially difficulty interacting with other people socially. Right. It has to be reined in in some form. It does. It does. And we're not going to rein it in with controlled dopamine. Mm -hmm. um, we want to rein it in more right. with the here, with and, here now. and now. Yeah. Very creative people, sometimes they need to get out of the clouds and come back down to earth mm -hmm. and uh, really focus on the concrete issues of what's going on with their hair and their socks mm -hmm. and, and also the here and now issues of maintaining good relationships with people they care about. Mm-hmm. And then tactile things like touching things or colors or moving things or throwing a rock or something. Yeah, and in the last chapter in the book, we talk about combining dopamine right. and here and now. And one of the best ways to do that is doing creative things with your hands right. uh, because you're using dopamine to the max in terms of creativity. Like painting. Yeah, you're also using here and now to the max because you're you're actually doing something with the real concrete world. And that's why when you're doing something creative, even if it's making a PowerPoint presentation, mm -hmm. oftentimes it's a peak moment in your life where you get into the state that's sometimes called flow mm -hmm. and uh, it's just so enjoyable. You're, you're really maximizing your brain power uh, from all directions. Mm -hmm. Now... Uh, beyond that chapter, on to the chapter on politics. It connects um, political, you know, categories with the type that they are more dopaminergic or more here and now. I like that part because also it helps me see um, individuals more clearly. Like this is what they would like. Maybe a person on one side would be more liking of reliability or stability or things not changing. Other things would make them nervous. Whereas on the other end. Um, a lack of change or a lack of certain characteristics would then also make them 
nervous, I guess. Right. You know, we had um, the most fun writing that chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was it was largely unexpected for me as a psychiatrist. I've mainly been focused on substance abuse and other illnesses associated with dopamine malfunction. Mm-hmm. And in researching for this book, I came across the political part, and it was fascinating. And, and I think it's particularly important today because we have such a strong division between the left and the right. Mm-hmm. And I think there have been times in history when people disagree about politics. They can say, well, you know, a lot of it's a matter of opinion. Mm-hmm. Politics is not science. Right. And some people think one thing, some people think another. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, and we can agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Today, we don't have that. Um, today, it's more along the lines of, if you don't agree with me politically, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And what this chapter does is is by looking at some of the neurobiological underpinnings of political ideology, mm-hmm. it can really enable us to understand people on the other side, put ourselves in their shoes, and realize that they're not bad people. Mm-hmm. They're instead seeing the world in a different way. Right. And based on this perspective that their brain is giving them, they're coming up with solutions to the problems. Um, But depending on how active your dopaminergic system is, those solutions are going to look very different. Right. I had noticed that, um, let's say on the conservative or here and now side, there is a little bit more uh, fear of change. And then whenever there's a point to be made to others, maybe more on the liberal or dopaminergic side it'll be involving a threat or like a fear of you might lose this are they projecting their own fears onto the other side to persuade because that would be fearful to them and they're trying to relate i think in part um you know because dopamine is about maximizing future resources people with lots of dopamine like change yes they're always trying to make the world a better place they're always trying to get control of the world in order to shape it according to their own ideals. Mm-hmm. And these are characteristics associated with the left. Mm-hmm. And we can see that really clearly in the fact that they call themselves progressives. Right. They're interested in progress. They want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Conservatives, on the other hand, uh, have more active here-and-now brain systems. Mm-hmm. They do a better job of appreciating what it is we have, mm-hmm. and they want to protect that from change. Right. And not coincidentally, they call themselves conservatives. Mm-hmm. They, they want to conserve and protect the good things that they have. And, and so they are going to be more reactive to threats, mm-hmm. um, things that threaten their way of life. And so um, they often do communicate um, their the political ideas in terms of threats mm-hmm. they want to limit immigration because they feel that immigrants represent a threat to the culture that they value mm-hmm. they um, they support law and order initiatives because they want to protect themselves from harm and protect their property mm-hmm. they 
support a strong defense uh, for obvious reasons. Whereas mm-hmm. progressives are going to support things uh, like um, the government investing in technology, mm-hmm. uh, the government actively trying to lift people out of poverty, uh, the government taking more control over people's lives, mm-hmm. such as mandating motorcycle riders to wear helmets or trying to uh, change people's dietary habits mm-hmm. uh, because they think that through um, the use of planning, uh, they can make people's lives better. Right. And, and so whereas conservatives are more reactive to threat, progressives are more reactive to potential rewards. Hmm. And then more from a distance, whereas on the other end, it's more right here. So even though on the conservative or here and now end, maybe opposed to immigration, uh, I like it was cool how you read. Uh, you said that more likely to help locally if there's an actual immigrant right there, because it's here and now. It's right here in front of me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because dopamine makes you think abstractly. Mm-hmm. Progressives think about the big picture, mm-hmm. uh, whereas here and now is is a lot about socializing and interactions, and that's where the conservatives are. So they may oppose immigration in theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- if there is a human being in front of them right. who is in need, their here and now chemicals are going to make them experience empathy and make them want to reach out to help that human being. Mm-hmm. And so um, conservatives do tend to be more active in um, charitable organizations mm-hmm. that work directly with people. They give more money to charity, whereas progressives are more likely to support policies Right. Uh, that help people who are in need rather than engaging um, one-on-one with these people. Mm-hmm. I noticed in relation to immigration that you had mentioned in this uh, chapter about a certain gene, D4 gene, and then the 7R variant of it that connects with distance of migration that people took long ago, their, their novelty-seeking or their ability to respond to change when they got there. I thought that was cool because it's sort of like DNA is representing... It's giving us a partial blueprint to the path that the person would have taken later on. That's right. We've been talking about um, other people's reaction to immigrants, but mm-hmm. if we look into the brain of the immigrants themselves, we're going to find high levels of dopamine. And the reason is, is because this makes people interested in change. It makes people willing to take risks associated with moving to a brand new country mm-hmm. in order to seek a better life. And You know, the United States is a nation of immigrants and the descendants of immigrants. And so we have an enriched gene pool for these dopaminergic genes. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the role that the United States plays in the world, we can see this dopaminergic effect. Um, We've got Silicon Valley. Uh, We lead the world in terms of technological innovation. We've got Hollywood. We lead the world in terms of producing music and movies and Mm -hmm. other forms of entertainment. Um, You know, the United States has been called imperialistic. We've got troops all over the world because we feel that, you know, with our democracy, with our freedom, we know what's best and we want to... um, bring change to other countries to try to give them these advantages as well. So, um, you know, when people who have very high levels of dopamine in other countries, a lot of times they come to the United States where they think the opportunities are going to be maximized. 
And um, in some ways that depletes dopamine genes from other countries, such as Europe, and um, it, it makes us a very dopaminergic country. Right. And, and so we are very wealthy, but we're also dissatisfied. In other countries, people who have much less than we do are often much happier than we are because they've got more activity in their endorphins, their endocannabinoids, oxytocin, mm-hmm. etc. Right. They're taking in what they have. Yes. Yeah, they're just kind of living life as it comes. I, I mean, I visited Italy a few years ago, mm-hmm. and boy, that was nice. Two hours for lunch, hanging out. Right. Um, just enjoying the sunshine, the beauty. Uh, it, it, it's kind of an appealing way of life mm-hmm. that we don't do in the United States. The United States is all about how can I be more productive? Right. How can I get a raise? How can I get a bonus? How can I get a bigger house, a better car? Mm-hmm. It's a different approach to life. Right. That's true. I noticed that that's in the next chapter about progress that there's not that many highly dopaminergic people in the world. So then if there is transfer from Europe to here, then that actually affects Europe. I've noticed there's not that many of these individuals that I would look at as um, they are that. It's a, it's a small minority. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the United States is based on entrepreneurialism, mm-hmm. uh, taking risks to build something new. We see that a lot less in Europe and places like Japan. Um, and it's a problem for them in terms of their economy because what less people with less dopamine want to do is they want to get a stable job um, right. and just stay there their whole life. Mm-hmm. And we need people like that. But really, these days, for a vibrant economy, we also need these risk takers. Right. This is true. They create a difference. Now, I did notice these risk takers or dopaminergic people labeled and described as sort of when there's a group, they're seen as a liability, like you said earlier, um, because whenever cooperation is necessary, it's uh, their liability. But then when there's times of, let's say, variety or chaos or change, then they uh, flourish. So they have to be cautious about where they uh, use their skills. Yeah. You know, if you look at business publications, on a regular basis, there are articles about how to manage the high performers who are very difficult to get along with. Mm-hmm. And these things go together. Uh, the most creative guy in the group, the um, the most successful salesperson, the hardest worker, these people are very valuable to the company, but oftentimes they're also disruptive. Um, they don't follow the rules mm-hmm. um, because they want change. They're, um, they're square pegs in round holes, mm-hmm. troublemakers, right? Um, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the temptation is to fire them because they don't follow the rules, the policies. They get other people angry. Mm-hmm. But these are, your, in some ways, your most important employees. And so learning how to manage them is important. Right. Now, um, for those individuals, in the last chapter, it talks about balancing and bringing harmony to it. For those individuals, grounding and uh, relaxing and taking in the moment is the way to balance for them, what about for here and now people? Is there like uh, balancing for them to take more risk or novelty seeking or what, what, what would they do? It's a great question. It, it, it's a great question that is in some ways a very philosophical question. Right. Because it, it speaks to the question of what is the purpose of life? Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle said the purpose of life is happiness. Mm-hmm. And if you subscribe to that view, then here and now 
individuals don't really need to worry about maximizing their dopamine because they're generally going to be very happy. Right. Um, you know, you think about the California surfer dude mm-hmm. who just takes life as it comes. Everybody loves him. He's got a million friends and he's sure. always happy. Um, so if you're like that and you want to maximize your happiness, there's not a lot of reason to change. On the other hand, if you think that the purpose of life is to create things, to make the world a better place, uh, to be productive, then being more exclusively here and now is not going to cut it. Um, you do need to be more dopaminergic. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's not something I've given a great deal of thought to, to be honest, mm-hmm. because I, I agree with Aristotle. I think the purpose of life is happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not that everybody should be laid back. Um, you know, we, we have to pursue who we are. Right. We have to seek out to express our authentic self. But if that authentic self is um, laid back, I don't think there's a lot of reason to change. Mm-hmm. Um, if, on the other hand, that authentic self is driven, dopaminergic, and miserable right. because you're always wanting something that you don't have – then I think you may want to consider trying to bring about some change. That makes sense. Now, um, that is the book wonderful because all the sections separate. One thing I liked about it was each chapter at the end of it had the citations right after it, which usually doesn't happen in books, usually at the end. So you could see the exact like set of articles that were connected to it. That was a nice feature. And in relation to that, uh, you had co-written the book with Michael E. Long, one time I kind of co-read a small e-book with somebody and it was fun to do on Google Docs, but then you have to like balance it. How was that experience? Um, you know, overall, it was a terrific experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Mike is a speech writer mm-hmm. um, and he teaches writing. And so um, he made sure I didn't fall into writing as a scientist. Mm. Because uh, if you pick up a scientific journal, the writing is appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dense. It, it's uninteresting. Okay. And so he really brought the sparkle and the sizzle to the writing, uh, whereas I brought the science. And so it was a terrific collaboration. We were friends before we started this, and, and we just thought it would be a fun project to work on together. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were also challenges. Uh, because we didn't always agree on how things um, should be. And um, sometimes it would be very, very difficult because we're both dopaminergic and we both think we're right and we're <laughs> passionate. Uh, and, and, and there were times when, um, when we wondered if our friendship was going to survive this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, it did. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, similar. Yeah, that's a nice. During the process, you're like, wait, should we? Should, yeah, but we must. We must come to a result. That's cool. And then did, comes did your up. friendship survive the process? Well, that was a person from uh, the internet, but we did get along. Uh, but we were very similar. So it's different from your uh-huh. scenario because yours is more complimentary, but we were more similar. So I think yours actually is more fruitful because there's uh, more of that balance. Whereas if you were maybe more very similar, then you'd both be like, well, this is the thing. This is the thing. And then it's less likely to come to a, a result. So I think that was a good idea. Yeah, that, that's right. I would usually give in to him uh, on matters of style, mm-hmm. and he always gave in to me on matters of science. Right. So there's that. That's a good pairing. That's wonderful. Yeah. This is great. That is the material. I will close up there as far as the book. 
that is wonderful to know about. I am very uh, inclined towards this category and the brain. And what you had said is uh, it's more is coming along that way. Like, for example, you had mentioned the uh, focus and the people distancing from social media. Like one uh, other book from another. Do you know Cal, Cal Newport? I don't know. He just came up in my mind, but he had a book called Deep Work about focusing, and then he has one coming out like next month about digital minimalism, which is exactly about uh, cutting out elements of social media. So the the framework of that, I think more books are coming out in that category of uh, people pulling back and what what does your feed look like that you're looking at, that you're scrolling through, or what are you doing? So I see that uh, being a change that's occurring. And then in closing, what is... Um, a maybe a goal or a plan uh, going forward or in 2019 that you have in relation to what you're doing? I'm currently working on my next book, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's about um, helping people understand their unconscious mind mm-hmm. using a Jungian model. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that people don't give a lot of thought to the unconscious part of their mind, mm-hmm. um, but in fact, it... Um, it, it really controls most of our life. Um, consciously, we have no control over our emotions, our energy, our motivation. We can't even control what we're interested in. All of this is under the control of our unconscious mind, which we utterly ignore, and it's a huge mistake. And this book is going to be about understanding your unconscious mind mm-hmm. and learning how to work collaboratively with it so uh, that you can, apl- so you can apply your energies, your enthusiasms, and your talents uh, in the most productive way. This is wonderful. I'm glad to have had you on this episode of... This is 201 of The Armin Show and describing all the details of both your book and your career and where you're going. Thanks, Armin. It's been great talking to you. And we are out.